I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Morning, everyone. Hope you're having a great week. This week on Wikipedia, I bring to you part one of my conversation with Andrew Kutnick. Now, Dr. Andrew Kutnick is a researcher studying the influence of nutrition and metabolism on health, disease, and performance. So, whilst he originally began his research path at Florida State University in the exercise science, studying the influence of nutrition, exercise, supplementation, and environmental extremes on health-based outcomes, we spend a small amount of time talking about his research, but more importantly, we talk about his experience with being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when he was 18 years old and having to manage it and finding the best path forward for him. This is how he discovered that a lower carbohydrate approach really helped him manage his day-to-day -day blood sugar levels, but most importantly, have more control over his long-term health. Subsequent to him taking his own approach, he then became aware of the Type 1 Grit Group on Facebook and what they've done and what the research is now showing in and around low-carbohydrate diets for people with Type 1 diabetes. We had such a great conversation. It was really long, so we've split it into two just to make it a little bit more digestible for you. So I'm bringing you the first part of this today. Now, anything that we talk about in the show will pop in the show notes, including how to contact Andrew, and he's super open to having people kind of reach out and, and ask him any questions. And that's over at andrewkutnick.com. That is A-N-D-R-E-W-K-O-U-T-N-I-K.com. And obviously, we'll also put a link to where to find Andrew in the show notes as well. So, uh, I hope you enjoy this first part of our conversation. Hey Andrew, uh, good morning. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat to me today. What time is it for you? Uh, so, let's see, 12.48 Eastern Time. Um, so, what, what time is it for you, actually? Um, 4.38 in the morning. Uh, AM or PM? AM. Oh! I know. I know. <laughs> That's impressive. Okay. I'm an, I'm an early bird anyway. And I okay. just, after coming across your, um, well, actually more your name before your work, after listening to okay. Dom D'Agostino talk on a number of different podcasts about a PhD uh, researcher in his lab who has type 1 diabetes and manages it with a low carb approach. I was really interested to hear more of your story, Andrew, because, you know, as a practitioner, we are not, or and maybe this is just me, but there's no real fear from my end to go in with someone who has type 2 diabetes and recommend a low carb approach. Actually, to me, that's the most sensible, however that looks for a different, um, you know, client, but that's the most sensible approach, at least in my experience. With type 1 diabetes, you tend to tread a little more carefully just because they're almost two entirely different um, conditions despite their similarities and names, right? So um, I've been on your website a number of times and, and seen an almost PhD-like amount of information on there about your own journey with type 1 diabetes and your own research and, and work around it. That's not where your PhD is actually in, though, is it? No. So. Um... A lot of topics to top on there that you, you address, but yeah, that my PhD is actually in uh, biomedical sciences. So I started at Florida State in exercise physiology um, and then had some work in biomedical sciences looking at uh, like vascular and autonomic function um, uh, in, in rotor models. And also we've done a lot of work in humans uh, as well. But uh, when I went and did my PhD, I specifically wanted to look at metabolism because my personal journey with it. Um, and so my work is specifically in the topic of metabolism, but actually very tightly focused around the concepts of using metabolic tools, i.e. nutrition being one of them, and also things like uh, exogenous ketone administration, just to understand the underlying physiology that accompanies that, but also to understand how we can leverage what we've learned from that to apply it to the health, disease, and performance applications, uh, ideally to improve them. Um, yeah. But so, no, not specific to type 1 diabetes, but specific to metabolism uh, and uh, the, uh, its underlying effects, but also its application to other uses. That's how it's 
as I understood it as well. And I just thought there was just such a wealth of information on your website. And of course, subsequently, just on our brief chat before getting on the call, you credited um, Christy to uh, helping you kind of put all that together. And you're right, my kind of uh, not so brief kind of introduction did touch on a number of things which I'd hoped that we would talk about. And can we start off, Andrew, by outlining what is type 1 diabetes and how this does differ from type 2? Because obviously people are well familiar with both conditions, but might not be so aware or familiar with how they do actually differ. Yeah, so uh, so you mentioned Christy. I had to give her a lot of credit. Christy uh, Skorshak, she's going in for her PhD in, in Queens and is a, an absolute superstar. So really appreciate her and what she did to help me get that information out. I'm not a savant with... Uh, the internet and she certainly is so i appreciated her help for sure um so the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes i'm actually going to start a little bit historically on that topic because originally there was very little that distinguished those two so historically a lot of people view diabetes as diabetes mm -hmm. um, but before insulin was discovered patients like myself who were diagnosed before the years of 18 years of age which is more common than, than after 18 years of age mm -hmm. um, would typically show up in the hospital in adolescence age dealing with, you know, throwing up, basically symptoms of DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis. And when they would show up, the age alone <clears throat> would usually be a distinguishable factor. Um, but later on, in about the 1950s and 60s, there was actually literature attempting to clearly distinguish these two things. Um, instead of just looking at the phenotype of the individual, the age, the body composition, um, between them, of course, type 1 being thinner and younger, typically, not always. <clears throat> and it's certainly not always the case anymore. Um, you have a lot of, you have uh, a whole bunch of things that uh, are now mixed into this that make it more convoluted. But they did some studies actually looking at uh, glucose administration in these subjects. And in the type 1 subjects, you would see this clear distinguishable phenotype, but you would also see that their blood sugars would elevate and, and stay elevated without insulin administration, whereas type 2, they would have an elevation and they would eventually come back down, but it would be delayed. And so there was this kind of uh, growing appreciation for the underlying differences between these two types uh, of diabetes. And um, eventually over time, as we learn more and more about them, uh, I guess the, the big picture distinguishing factors between these is one is, uh, and this is how it's always described, uh, is very well, most commonly described. There's more nuance to it now and different viewpoints on this, but type 2 diabetes is typically uh, believed to be insulin resistance, where you have the production of insulin but the inability to fully utilize the insulin to its full capacity. And as a consequence, you have, because insulin does a great job of bringing blood sugar down uh, in the body and putting it in tissues, uh, it's, if it doesn't work appropriately, we have the elevation of glucose in the blood and stays elevated until insulin is able to bring it down. If it's resistant, it stays elevated. Accompanying that's also elevation of amino acids and free fatty acids, not just glucose, although that's the common one we focus on for a number of reasons. But in type 1, uh, you just have a, a growing reduction in the ability to actually produce insulin in the first place. There's not necessarily an underlying resistance, although that doesn't mean you can't have resistance in the absence of insulin production. That can actually occur. Mm. Uh, but at its 30,000-foot level, type 2 is the resistance of insulin. You do have production of it. Uh, but type 1, you have an absence of production of it. And these are all relative terms. They aren't black mm. and white. Type 2 actually do have beta cell dysfunction and loss mm. near late stage progression. Uh, at least that's what literature seems to indicate now. Uh, and type 1 actually have a very rapid reduction, but probably not a complete abolishment of all beta cells uh, altogether. Yeah. Yeah. So it's all relative. It's not really black and white, and everyone's a little bit different. Um, my C-peptide has a marker of that, which is pre-insulin, so to speak, something that's produced yeah. from the beta cells is pretty much zero. Um, mm. But some individuals may actually have some residual C-peptide, and this is certainly the case if they're younger and earlier on in their uh, disease diagnosis. Yeah, and it's really interesting, Andrew, I've tried to look for prevalence rates of diagnosis for type 1 in adults versus children and how they may have changed over time, because, and this is possibly just my increased awareness of type 1 diabetes and of, um, of people who have the condition, but it just, it, it feels like there have been more adults diagnosed in recent years compared to say 30 40 or 50 years ago and I'm, I'm do you have any kind of information around that I mean I'm but that might just be my you, and interpretation in your referencing type 1 diabetes correct yeah yeah yeah, yeah I, I so there's two reasons oh I'll say the two reasons I believe that that is the case I can't really speak um in a concrete fashion here but mm. 
there's, a, I think, a growing number of type 2 diabetics that are now being realized as actually type 1. Um, because, so for example, if you have LADA and you have the uh, progressive loss of beta cell uh, population and then also yeah. function of endogenous yeah. insulin production, um, you might have antibodies present for the uh, beta cells or some, some marker, antibody, uh, immunological marker that indicates you have some type of immune reaction towards uh, your beta cells or something related to the insulin production that inhibits uh, full insulin either production or utilization. And in that case, that would likely preclude you to be type 1 diabetic. Mm -hmm. Let's say you happen to be that person at 45, 50 years of age. Let's say you're normal or a little bit beyond normal body weight. You show up to the doctor and you say, hey, my blood sugar is just progressively rising. And, yeah. you know, I have, you know, I, I eat this way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're going to say, oh, you know, classic type two. two, you know. Yeah. So without some greater resolution on antibody testing or some other tests to get better resolution for a long time. Um, and this is not necessarily common practice either. either. Um, so you might show up and get your diagnosis of type two. Um, and in reality, you are actually have an immune response to your beta cells and they're slowly dying over time uh, mm -hmm. or rapidly depending on your situation and uh, in reality you're a lot uh, but uh, you don't know that and yeah. they are hard to distinguish because all you see is hba1c and blood sugar rising over time mm -hmm. and um, if you still have residual beta cells you still can change your ability to utilize that with lifestyle yeah. so in theory you might nudge it a bit right mm -hmm. so you might have some responsiveness towards it if you implement some of the common therapeutic strategies that uh, help type two diabetes. So that's one potential reason uh, for that. I'm sure there's a number of others that I'm just not thinking of right now, but that's a primary one that comes to mind. Uh, and for whatever reason, and there's, I'm sure theories abound about this, there do seem to be an increased prevalence in diagnosis of type one, not even in a younger stage, but also an older stage. And I yeah. do believe that the, the increased prevalence in older stage has a lot to do with the just awareness or the diagnosis of it accurately. Uh, yeah. And I'm sure there's a large swath of type 2 diabetics who actually are type 1 right now yeah. um, because it's just not necessarily something you would expect someone uh, to immediately test. If you walk into a clinic and you don't think further testing is required, it's, it's uh, tried to type 2, um, why do further testing? You know, what's yeah. the point? You might throw metformin on there and, you know, some other GFP1 agonist or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, that seems to be at least part of the issue. Yeah, that's really interesting because you did mention how the changing phenotype of, um, you know, children with type 1 now, you know, just by virtue of the way that uh, humans have evolved to live in this modern sort of society are not necessarily underweight the way they might have been as a type 1, um, say, back in the 80s. And I suppose for an adult, um, same things occur, like go to the doctor's office if they see that you are more leaning on that phenotype of slightly overweight you're right there's probably no reason for further investigation in their mind because it almost looks like a clear-cut type 2 diabetes situation and, and there there are certainly type 2 diabetics who are not uh in any uh category of obesity either mm. you know they could be less mm. than that sure um and still have underlying resistance um that makes them truly a type 2 diabetic yeah. uh so it's it's not the radar especially nowadays but it's just a, a an improvement in testing and awareness of these distinguishable these diseases based on their pathological onset. Mm. Um, yeah. Andrew, and, and as I understand it, you were diagnosed in your late teens, was it when you were around 18 or so with type 1 diabetes? I was 16 going on 17. Yeah, I was like uh, about a month out of my birthday um, yeah. on that diagnosis. And, and what symptoms were you experiencing that kind of got you to that position? I'll, I'll keep it short. If you want the long story, I can give you that. But the short story, and everyone has a story uh, related to type 1 diabetes diagnosis, but um, I was 16 going on 17. I was actually on the trip to Washington, D.C. Uh, and at that stage, I, <laughs> I had actually grown to love uh, learning a lot. Uh, I really loved the process of learning about politics and, and other aspects of school at that stage. And um, so we actually took a family trip to Washington, D.C. So I was actually in Tallahassee, Florida, in the terminal uh, at the airport. And I was like, man, I don't feel good. You know, mm -hmm. and I, at this point, I'm no body weight. I used to be overweight. I had lost a bunch of weight. And it wasn't related, in my opinion, to type 1 diabetes diagnosis, mm -hmm. even retrospectively thinking about it. I had just lost weight over time doing exercise and diet. And I was normal body weight, exercising regularly, and had been doing so for like a year. 
Mm. And I show up at the terminal, about to go to Washington, D.C. I'm like, damn, my stomach was terrible. You know, like, I, I don't feel good. And so, of course, to fix that problem, uh, you drink sugar mm. and Gatorade and carbonated drink and things that like are like a bread or whatever. But I had drinking a Gatorade or drank a Gatorade in a Sprite um, to think that was going to improve my situation. Uh, it didn't really do much until I got on the airplane and actually AC started hitting me. Like the, the, the AC really helped a lot. But then I was walking around Washington, D.C. and about 15, 30 minutes into a walk, I was gassed. Mm. Um, like I had nothing to give. Mm. Uh, and we would go walking for hours and hours a day. I'm like, you know, I, what's up with this? Like this doesn't make any sense. I would just had zero energy. Mm. Um, and, you know, three days later, uh, each night we would go out, we'd go out to dinner. And I, the first night I drank is it 14 or 16th, you know, typical water glasses you get at a restaurant. And that was a record because that was within two hours. And the next one I drank the pitchers of water that they mm. pour your drink out of. I drank two of those mm. and then uh, threw all of it up uh, for 14 hours straight. Uh, and eventually went to the hospital. So I was extremely fatigued. I did have increased urination. I was extremely thirsty. Uh, and, uh, it all kind of came crashing down about a, a two to three day window. It became very progressive and I was definitely mm. full fledged onset when I got there. And about mm. a day and a half, two days later is when I was in the hospital. Oh, wow. And so subsequent to that, so what I've heard you talk about your, um, specialist doctors actually being really open-minded with your approach to um, how you managed your type 1 diabetes, but can you sort of talk us through, you know, your initial management strategy and then how that sort of changed over those few years? Yeah, when I was first, so keep in mind, I had lost a bunch of weight and I was into exercise yeah. and fitness. Like I had always been, my family was always into it. You know, my aunt and uncle, they used to run marathons and they had climbed mountains. And so it was always a prevalent part of our family. Um, and my mom and dad had both run, my mom had run a half marathon and Rosa Abbott runner. My dad had ran a marathon and, and done some, like century rides and all sorts of stuff. So we were always into exercise uh, and we'd always struggled with weight, uh, mm. when we were, uh, throughout life. So it was always a part of our lives, like nutrition and exercise, but I, had, I was overweight and I had lost a bunch of weight. So when I was on my, um, kind of, I, so I went into my diagnosis with some kind of, uh, already kind of like healthy eating so to speak yeah 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 um and honestly it was i mean by most standards i mean there's nothing mm. wrong with what i was doing uh but i so i had some type of, of lifestyle you know mm. some type of lifestyle intervention i was already doing at that stage when i got diagnosed uh the second i left the hospital i i just continued that mm. um and i think this is pretty common although i can't speak for everyone but when you typically go they typically implement what's called a basal bolus strategy so yeah that is providing a basal amount of insulin, which is one of these insulins that lasts either 12 plus hours or 24 plus hours. And you either do the 12 plus hours, two shots, one in the morning, one in the evening, or the 24 you do at one time a day. Um, or maybe you split that 24 hour over half doses twice a day. There's different ways people do this. But that essentially covers your basal metabolic needs because in reality, most people don't appreciate this, but you actually do have a, a efflux of glucose out of tissue into the serum on a regular basis and insulin is being just kind of residually handling that on a regular basis. Uh, so you do have insulin that's kind of basically secreted and glucose efflux into the serum that's basically handled by that insulin. Mm. But if you're a type one diabetic, you don't take basal insulin, you quickly realize how much that actually is and how much you yeah. actually need to kind of counteract that. Is if you're regularly eating, I must caveat mm. that. If you're fasting or doing something else, you can circumvent that. But we'll talk about most people uh, in this mm. situation. So um, basal insulin, they provide a basal insulin to kind of cover what keeps you as close to stable without food present as possible. That's the goal. That's your basal mm -hmm. insulin. If you can nail that, that's what they typically are shooting for. Now, a bolus is, you know, like I have them right here in this little pouch. They're like various types of uh, kinetics-based insulins. This is, so this is Humbalog. This is a rapid insulin. This is supposed to last give or take two hours, peak at one hour, if you inject the adipose tissue. And then there's also other insulins that a lot of people don't use, um, like regular insulin, mm. which typically won't peak for an hour and a half, maybe two and a half hours and last for four to six hours. Mm. So there's different types, but those are typically given with the meal. And those will cover whatever glycemic response accompanies the food you ate, mm. uh, which of course is typically focused in the diabetic realm around carbohydrate counting. So yeah. that was what the case was for me. 
Mossberg's diagnosis, you get the basal strategy, you keep working with that, especially when you're first diagnosed, because mm. you also have residual beta cell function because you're in the honeymoon phase. Mm. And not all your beta cells are typically destroyed overnight. Mm. It takes time for that to lead in. So your function is slowly dwindling over, t- or dwindling over time. And then you're, you're kind of working with trying to adapt your basal rate to accommodate that over time. And then you're also accommodating in kind your bolus along with the foods you're eating on a real basis. So you kind of have this buffer with your endogenous mm-hmm. insulin that's still left. Um, and you're working through that initially. But gold standard is basal bolus. So that's what I just described. And then also carbohydrate counting, which is, okay, how many, how many, um, what do they call the exact? Like it, it's, a, it's like a, a typical dose of carbohydrates. Say it's 15 grams. Yeah. Uh, it's one unit. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of calculate, okay, one, one unit of carbohydrate. Uh, how much does that account for in insulin? So you start conservatively with your bolus. Mm-hmm. And then you slowly adapt that to you as a person. So mm-hmm. how much insulin you would require is obviously going to be different for me if we were both type 1 diabetic. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of optimizing it. So you start conservative and you optimize it until you get to kind of a, a, a more stable situation. And usually yeah. that doesn't occur until you're out of the honeymoon stage. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that's typically how it goes. Basal bolus and carbohydrate counting. Uh, and yeah. that's pretty much still standard, uh, even if yeah. you're using a pump. Um, it's still the same strategy and I I obviously want to get back to your own personal journey but can you kind of outline some of the potential issues or the nuance around the carbohydrate insulin um, match if you like with meals and the all the potential mismatch that I've heard you talk about before so you've got these different um speed of insulin being released into the system and you've got rapid intermediate or um uh, and then you've got that long lasting. Is that how it actually works in real time or real life, Andrew? Like, so no, and it, it no, it's not. Uh, so mm-hmm. maybe for you, let's say you ate. Assuming you don't have type one diabetes, mm-hmm. I, and I, you know, assuming you don't, if you go and ate, let's say, fifty grams of potatoes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's typical, you know, uh, white potatoes or yellow potatoes, whatever, um, and you ate that food, okay. Pretty quickly, your body's going to start digesting that into individual, uh, you know, into polysaccharides and then to mono and disaccharides. And then once it gets to that stage, it's going to go into uh, the intestine or the intestinal cells for absorption. And then eventually, by the time it actually gets to your serum, it's pure, essentially, glucose. Mm. And so for you, the second that hits your bloodstream, once it gets circulated to the point where it's taken up through the beta cells, because your beta cells will uptake the glucose levels on a regular basis will produce a signal in correspondence to the level of blood sugar at any particular moment. Mm. The second it detects a difference in blood sugar that's beyond, elevated beyond its homeostatic level, whatever that ends up being. For most people, that's going to be somewhere between 80 and 120, um, depending on what your normal is, um, probably somewhere around you know, 90 to 100, whatever it might be. Uh, but with that, uh, your body will detect, okay, let's say you ate that food and it's got to 130, 140 uh, milligrams per deciliter. And then your body will say, okay, there's obviously some elevation in blood sugar here because of the signal producing the beta cell. That signal then translates to causing these insulin granules to release directly into the bloodstream. Mm. That is a key distinguishable factor. So the second you see an elevation in your blood, assuming you have normal metabolic health and everything is going great, you don't have type 2, type 1, diabetes, you will have an instant release of insulin into the bloodstream the second your blood sugar elevates, or at least when it reaches the the beta cell, which will be pretty instantaneous. So Mm. we're talking minutes Mm. where this, and however long it takes to digest. So these little slower digesting foods, it's easily more easily handled because you have, it's more prolonged, right? So you don't have as much of a uh, magnitude of effect of that insulin immediately. And usually someone like yourself, you're looking at a continuous glucose monitor may never even see a spike at all because mm. you are, your insulin is doing a great job of handling it so rapidly. Now, let's say you take away your beta cell function and now you're Andrew, okay? You eat that same potato. Um, it's going to now elevate your blood sugar. But keep in mind, you don't have any endogenous system to manage that. So let's mm. say it gets hot in the house, you have this automatic thermostat and now your thermostat says, okay, now it's above, let's say 75 degrees. Uh, Fahrenheit. I'm probably using the wrong units for some people, uh, but let's just say it's 75 units Fahrenheit and you go to 76. Okay. That little bit of change is automatically detected, turns on and auto-corrects the house temperature. 
Same deal here with insulin. The second it happens, you have a correction immediately and it's handled pretty quickly. And before you know, you're really not really detecting any differences in temperature because it's kind of all being automated for you. Mm. But for type one, I eat that potato. It starts elevating my blood sugar, let's say anywhere between, because it's potato, let's say 10 to 15, maybe 20 minutes where I start really seeing a meaningful change in blood sugar. Mm. Well, I don't have the endogenous insulin response. So I, as a type one, would have to then anticipate the magnitude of impact of that food based on a number of factors that it will have on my blood sugar. And then on a, based on a number of factors on top of that, I need to anticipate how much insulin to give, how sensitive my body will be, and how rapidly it will absorb that insulin to have that magnitude of effect in order to calculate, anticipating as much as I can to match the kinetics of that insulin to the kinetics of that food induced glucose response. Mm. The problem here is when you actually look at the data, it doesn't look like it would be that far off. It looks like, okay, if you eat a mixed meal with some fat and fiber in it, in theory, that meal glycemic response shouldn't be too far off of a, a typical um, bolus strategy with one of these rapid insulins. But it's just not how it happens. Yeah. What the reality is that, like, let's say I inject that into the stomach. Um, the kinetics of glucose into the serum is semi-predictable, but largely not extremely predictable. Mm. And I'll also tell you the insulin of, or the kinetics of insulin when administered, let's say I injected it into my animals. So I just went for a swim, okay? And I came back and I ate food. I need to account for the sun exposure I just had. How long was that exercise? How intense was that exercise? Did I do enough to increase the absorption rate when I inject it? Mm. And then also the sensitivity once it's actually absorbed. Mm. All of these play into trying to predict what the outcome is going to be. And the hard reality is that it's very unpredictable. And yeah. if it was predictable, we wouldn't be seeing patients sitting at an average glycemic control, 8% of HbA1c. Yeah. We wouldn't be seeing average glycemic numbers somewhere between 160 and 200 milligrams per deciliter with a standard deviation 60 to 80. If yeah. these insulins were able to reliably match the carbohydrate response, which is the most common macronutrient in the diet, we wouldn't have these issues. In fact, you can look at the kinetics of these algorithmic-based um, uh, CGMs, which I have a CGM right here from Dexcom, right? So, uh, well, I guess it's off right now. Battery's dead. But whatever. So I have one right here, right? And let's say I have that, and I also have one of these automated insulin release pods that automatically releases insulin according to what my blood sugar is, okay? Mm. Well, uh, then it will automatically detect that. But even with those, it doesn't fully correct for the problem. Um, and you still mm -hmm. see a lot of variation, even with that computer-based AI technology trying to assist. Not as to say they aren't valuable, they're extremely valuable tools. They reduce the burden of, on patients tremendously, and they give you amazing tools to try and predict the outcomes on a regular day in and day out basis um, with your, you know, what is the response you have with food, with exercise and beyond. But the reality is that you will have a release of insulin within seconds to a minute of the food the second it hits your bloodstream. The quickest we can possibly hope, even with that insulin I just showed you, which is typically considered rapid or very rapid insulin, um, is still looking at a peak at about one hour. The only way I can expedite that is I inject it straight into the muscle and I exercise mm. or get into a hot shower. And then I can expedite that mm. by maybe cut that time in half. But that's still 30 minute peak. And that's still in my system for at least an hour and beyond. There's still a tail effect. So the reality is it just doesn't yeah. reliably match. And let's say that mm. they did. There's more insulins. They have inhaled insulins now. They have uh, extremely uh, rapid acting insulins um, that have just come on the market. Here's the issue. Let's say they do reliably match the carbohydrate response. Let's go, anyone can do this test. Let's say you have a typical meter or say you're lucky enough to be access to a CGM and you put that on, you're a normal healthy individual. Go drink a Coke, go drink a Pepsi, um, you know, have like 60 grams of straight sugar and see the response you have and how quickly, even though you have fully intact insulin response, you'll see how quickly that rises. Imagine if you had an insulin that was just as quick. How dangerous would that be if you got it wrong? And the example I will give you is, let's say Andrew Kudnick was, you know, I do a low carbohydrate diet. I'm sure that's not news to anyone here. Um, but let's say that Andrew all of a sudden was doing a very high carbohydrate diet. 
and I was eating like, let's say the typical American consumption. So I'm 250 to 350 grams a day. So 300 grams. And I'm having three meals mm -hmm. a day. Um, although obviously most people snack a lot, but let's say I have to split it across three meals, hundred grams per meal. I have a hundred grams. Let's say that I need a correction ratio of 15 grams of carbs. Well, let's just make it easy. 10 grams of carbs for one unit of insulin. That's 10 units of insulin. Let's say I take 10 units and then I go outside actually, and, but no, today's a little different. Like I, I have a 22 month old son and I had to get him into school. I couldn't eat right away. So I'm moving. I got out of the sun. Yeah. I'm more active. And I inject that same 10 units thinking it's going to respond the same way. And in reality, I actually maybe kicked up my insulin sensitivity, my absorption rate. And now that 10 units is acting like, uh, sorry, that 10 units is now acting like 15, 20 units. And yeah. that magnitude of difference when you have more insulin on board also means much more variance when the dose is not accurate. Uh, and then yeah. you talk about like one unit for me at one point in the day might drop me 20 units if it's mm -hmm. at night post exercise an extensive two hour plus exercise session and i've been very active and on my feet all day that could be 100 units so we're talking about yeah. a lot of variance that goes into predicting these outcomes and if you're off mm -hmm. by 80 milligrams per deciliter and you're sitting anywhere near normal that has a lot of consequences yeah. normal is 80 to 120 yeah. so if you have a yeah. variance that is if you're off by that much, there's no way you can keep your blood sugar in a normal range. And so that is also in why it's typically not safe for someone who's doing strategies where you are doing a lot of carbohydrate consumption and have a lot of variance. And it really just comes down to that, in my opinion, the variance. Because where you can safely yeah. keep your blood sugar really comes down to how much variance you have around it. Because if you mess up like that, not on purpose, a lot of times these are completely unpredictable factors. Uh, and it's so hard. There's so many things that go into it. It's very hard to just nail it. You know, like uh, even, you know, I have 15 years experience. I have traditional training in metabolism. I've been doing this for a very long time. I've self-experimented the entire time with a lot of, uh, a lot of interest and detail in getting it right. And still to this day, love every aspect of it. I wouldn't take away type 1 diabetes if I could, because it, what it's given me as a researcher is mm -hmm. invaluable. But even with that and that level of insight, it's not perfect. You know, it's, it's much easier now than it ever could have been if I did it differently than I do it, but it's not perfect. Um, but, you know, I'll stop there and just say, yeah. um, there's a lot to it, but yes, the, the insulin kinetics of rapid insulin just don't match carbohydrates reliably. Uh, and, yeah. and if it did, we'd be in a, a much more dangerous situation with how rapid that would work. I feel like, well, one, people are just completely unaware of what you've just described with regards to carbohydrate to insulin. And certainly I had, you know, I had an idea about it, but I had no idea about the real complexities of it. Thank you for describing that, Andrew. And I also feel like we don't really understand for people who don't have type one diabetes, just how much this changes our overall health span as we age, you know, because I feel like people think, oh, type one diabetes, oh, you just inject insulin to cover carbohydrate you were sweet if you run a little high no big deal but it is actually a big deal yeah it, it is um and this is where i i typically don't try to put a whole lot of this out there but i think it's worth doing because i think there are actually strategies out there that can address the issues that i will uh outline you know i had an amazing opportunity about four years ago uh to do uh i was selected as a tedx participant and to talk about my personal journey on this and uh, a potential option to help patients going forward. And you know, you, you walk into the doctor and the doctor will typically tell you, you know, there are consequences if you don't manage this well. The worst case scenario is like, look, your vision might get impaired. And if you don't really take care of it, you know, you might have a limited Like we see that in di diabetes. You know, I'm not saying it happens to every doctor, every doctor is different in how they portray these consequences to patients. But I will tell you, you know, it's not often portrayed in the way that I saw when I really, really dug into it in graduate school fully, um, looking at type one diabetes, looking at the actual risks. And the reason I brought the Ted talk is because a lot of this came full circle for me, um, around that because I was, I was going all in, you know, you, you know, a lot about this. I've obviously managed it for 10 years, but really digging into the data was actually one of the most eye opening experiences for me as a type one diabetic, as a researcher, 
there were a number of things I had never known. You know, type 1 diabetics are set up for increased risk for all 10 leading causes of death. You are also expected to lose no less. Well, let me, before I jump to that, at all 10 leading causes of death. But beyond that, every day is a journey, right? So if you have hyperglycemia, which is what most patients stay at on a regular basis mm -hmm. uh, by default because of this variance that typically accompanies glycemic control, um, that leads to hyperglycemic symptoms, which can change your psychological affect, the, your energy level, your irritability, your concentration. Um, there's data in, in, in children looking at, you know, glycemic mismanagement, typical type 1 diabetes glycemic mismanagement, not only mismanagement, but the typical glycemic control that's often accomplished using these tools and these strategies. Um, and mismanagement implies that someone's doing something wrong. Uh, I think that's inappropriate. Mm. It is what is typical and what is the typical outcomes of those typical approaches. And what you can what you see from that is that most patients sit in hyperglycemia to protect themselves from the acute risk of hypoglycemia, because that can obviously lead to coma, seizure, or death if you go too low because you just reduce all the metabolite, like the brain's ability to metabolize glucose. Unless you're in a ketogenic diet with ketones available, ketones and glucose, and you know, there's emergent evidence on lactate, but I won't go down that road. But glucose is the primary fuel for the brain unless you're on a low carbohydrate diet or you have ketones available to you. There is also lactate, but that's a different ball of wax. So if glucose gets too low and you're following a standard diet that most people in the world are, then you are potentially at risk for hypoglycemic induced uh, problems. You get below 80 and below 70, you're te technically, technically below 70, you're, you're clinically hypoglycemic. And then if you get below 56, you have these very well-characterized hypoglycemic associated effects. And if you go low enough, you start to lose your faculties. Um, you know, if you don't have that energy production, you're not fueling the brain. Imagine you just take the fuel away from the brain. It doesn't take very long for things to get very serious very quick. Um, and I've been in that situation one time, never been in the hospital, but I knew what it was like to be in the 20s. Um, mm -hmm. And it's uh, not a great feeling. Definitely the scariest, one of the scariest moments. Um, I remember looking at the TV and I knew the person was talking, but I did not understand the words they were saying. And I knew I didn't understand it. I knew how to do math. I knew routine and regimen, but I didn't know what the person was saying. And I saw their mouth moving and I knew they were speaking. I was like, it was a, it was a terrifying, terrifying place to be. But that's the acute symptoms, right? So you have this common hyperglycemia where you're well above 120 on a regular basis. And then you have the potential to be hyperglycemic, which most people try to avoid on a regular basis because you have this really stressful response. For those who haven't experienced that before, it's a lot like if you were to go up and give a, a very stressful uh, speech or you're very anxious about something in your life and someone just hit it with you all of a sudden you're, mm. and you just get shocked and you just feel that response. You get this, you know, you feel it like just tingling in your face. Like that feeling is hyperglycemia. You get very irritable, very hungry. You can't cognitively think very clearly. Um, most people only experience this type of very rapid, anxious, catecholamine-based response uh, when something's terribly wrong and, and something went and they acutely experience that because they're shocked. Let's say you're driving and someone just pulls in front of you. You know, they're like, boom, you just feel it rush through your body. But it lingers for like an hour. Mm. But that's the acute effects uh, of type 1 diabetes. I already talked about the chronic implications of this long term. Um, but the real thing that really struck at me as a type 1 diabetic mm. is I was looking for survival of type 1 diabetes. What is just normal survival if you get diagnosed with type 1 diabetes? And that data at that time, there's only two studies. And the range, was between 11 and 18 years on average of lost life. Meaning that if you're diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, an average age, I don't know what the average lifespan is, between 72 and 75. I might be wrong on that. I haven't looked in a little bit, but you're expected to, you're not, you know, you're lucky if you get into the, you know, 60s. That's a problem, you know? And, and when I saw that, I was like, is that really what we're expecting here? Because keep in mind, that is average. I mean, some people are doing better, but some people are doing worse. And so that really invigorated me because a lot of the symptoms of the acute and chronic complications and also long-term outcomes, we now know are tied to glycemic control. Yeah. And that shouldn't come as any surprise. In fact, some of them tied to it, some of them directly. 
uh, uh, inducing it. This shouldn't come as a complete surprise because someone like me uh, with type 1 diabetes, the one thing I'm lacking is endogenous insulin production to manage yeah. glycemia. These beta cells, their primary role, not their only role, but their primary role is to detect glucose and secrete insulin. So if you no longer have that, uh, then you are absent of that automated control. And then everything else that comes along with that. And we, there's a big study that came out uh, that was done over a 30-year span called the DCC and EDIC trial. Uh, um, uh, I think it was a, a multi-hundred million dollar trial, like 1,400 participants. And they essentially showed at that point and proved that greater glycemic control lowered HbA1c and also lowered complications. That was the one time where they really showed concrete that HbA1c lowering and improving glycemic control improved outcomes, even though they were administering more insulin. And we know data now illustrates that you know, higher insulin isn't necessarily better. So all that said, um, it harpens back to this glycemic control. And if we can hope to make meaningful impact in someone who's living with type 1 diabetes now, right now, you know, there's a lot of work being done, which is really important work. Yeah to address it from even being diagnosed in the first place. I mean, if you can prevent it altogether, amazing. But what about the patient who's, not just me, but like, what about the patient who's already diagnosed? What are they gonna do? They need something now. And with glycemic control being the primary effector of these outcomes, what can someone even hope to do to get normal glycemia if average is far from normal, uh, with HbA1c's being approximately eight, and in fact, they're increasing over the last 10 years. Um, when I went through that journey, learned about that and also realized that for myself about 10 years ago, I had, and you had mentioned the open-minded versus yeah. not open-minded doctors. Um, I've always had good experience, uh, relatively good experience. Um, I wouldn't say everyone's super open-minded about this, but I will say that when I walked into my doctor's office, what was 12, almost 13 years ago, and my HbA1c was 5.6. My doctor wasn't wondering what I was doing wrong. Yeah. He said, I don't know if I've ever seen this before. What are you doing right? And yeah. because at the end of the day, most people in the type 1 IBS world appreciate it. that's what matters. If you can get that HbA1c down, that's the primary risk factor for almost everything I talked about, um, if not everything. Uh, yeah. And so yeah. when I did that, you know, I, I was like, wow, this is incredible. It really invigorated. Because if that's not normal, and it was only just putting this intervention that I did, uh, which happened to be a lifestyle nutritional intervention, all of a sudden, bam, here I am showing up feeling the best I ever felt and normal blood sugars. And I was performing better in the gym. I was feeling better. Like I was barely testing out of 7 to 120. I didn't have a CGM at the time. I was just using meters. I was felt safer. You know, very rarely was experiencing hypoglycemia. and was very aware of when hypoglycemia occurred. Um, I was like, man, this is amazing. But over 10 years, Mickey. I had maybe come across 10 type one diabetics and I had come across zero who had done any therapy yeah. like I had done. And it really made me get to that point where I came all the way back full circle with this conversation about that's when I decided if there's an opportunity to share this with other people, i.e. via TED talk or something else. And this is largely why I'm speaking here today. I don't want a patient to show up at their doctor and not know that there might be a host of therapeutic strategies they might be able to implement if they're looking to do so. And, you know, it doesn't yeah. have to be my way at all. It, I just want a patient to know when they walk in with their child or on their own into the doctor for the first time or usually the hospital and find out the doctor walks in and says, you're going to be taking insulin for the rest of your life. You're going to be testing your blood sugar mm. for the rest of your life. Um, and uh, you have to count and be a master of your nutrition to understand how to regulate that with the most powerful hormone we have for all of metabolism. Yeah. You're going to be doing that for the rest of your life. So, you know, if, if all I hope for is that a patient would know their options and their full totality, and at least if they care to try, not that they have to, but if they care to. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, that's the thing, right? How do you make a decision if you're not fully informed? If you think that the only path for managing this is the traditional path and then with it all of the consequences that you've just outlined, both acutely and of course, chronically, not to even mention the uh, lifespan. 
yet, of course, kind of going on elsewhere in the world, we had Dr. Bernstein and his protocol for managing type 1 diabetes. And someone um, alerted you to the type 1 GRIT group, which are um, uh, children all over the world yep. using Dr. Bernstein's low carbohydrate, higher protein approach to manage their diabetes. And how overwhelmed you felt when you realized that all of these people were doing it and you'd and you had no idea do you want to just sort of describe that for me it was um surreal actually uh so i had went on this journey because in just total irony actually i, I thought about the irony of this about a couple of years ago when i finished my phd um i was thinking about it. i was like man you know when i first went into looking into low carb as an mm. option by the way that's what I ended up doing. I lowered the amount of carbohydrates in the diet and changed my insulin strategy to match the protein-based kinetics of food. And it was like I got off a roller coaster. It was like, okay, all of a sudden the insulins are now matching the foods I'm consuming on a regular basis. And now I'm not trying to constantly battle, you know, like slightly off uh, glycemic numbers and, and it's having an impact on how I feel on a regular basis. I was, I was getting off that roller coaster as, as many people describe it. But when I first went on this journey, the reason I got interested in it was actually not because of glycemic control. It was because I thought uh, there was this dialogue in the athletic, um, you know, at, you know, aesthetic athlete community. Because uh, all I cared about at that point was be bigger, stronger, faster. Right? I didn't care about really a whole lot else. You know, that's all I wanted to do. So I had heard, although at that time the way it was being portrayed was totally off in irony. Uh, now looking back, I've actually directly studied this. But the way it's being portrayed is like, okay, you can you can go on this diet and like, if you go on this ketogenic diet, this ketones will elevate and it will totally abolish, you know, you can totally, you can keep all your muscle and lose all this fat. Like, that's, that's all you're going to lose. Uh, and I was like, that sounds excellent. Uh, so I want to do that. So I, I was like, you know what, I'm going to switch over and try that. And actually at that time, I was, I was aware of a, and was friends with a um, professional athlete who had kind of gone on this journey through that and off that. And I had reached out to him. I was like, hey, you know, I'm thinking about doing this. You know, um, what are your thoughts? And the first thing was, okay, well, do you know about regular insulin? And I was like, no, I've never heard of that. And uh, this person was like, well, you might want to get familiar with it because that's the best strategy to manage this. You know, you have your basal insulin, you have your regular insulin to match protein now, and you really only use rapid anymore to correct for any mismanagement you have with the regular. And I was like, okay, you know, how do we go on that? And, and so we kind of like mapped out this cohesive plan based on this idea of doing a low carb diet. And the irony was I was nowhere in ketosis. You know, I wasn't even accomplishing this ketosis state that had this induced effect that I ended up studying as a PhD and ironically for muscle retention. So uh, I was definitely off base mm. there, but I still was like, that's why I did it, you know? And, um, and so I started adjusting, making these micro adjustments and increasing my fat and basically keeping my calories neutral. I just basically kept my protein the same. I calculated the amount of calories I had from carbohydrates, fat, and carbs were here. And I just said, okay, where are the calories of these energy fuels, carbs and fat? And I'm just going to, you know, well, this time I actually flipped it. I didn't like tinker it over time. I flipped it. Now, I would not recommend that for everyone per se. You know, if you can make a multi-week adjustment so you're not just completely shocked by the insulin change. Um, but I did kind of go all in and made that adjustment at that early stage of my, uh, about one and a half years out, I forget the exact timeline of being diagnosed and, uh, just had that input from this other individual to help along the way. Everything else I learned beyond that point took like 10 years to, and still to this point, I'm still learning more and more every day, but it really took a long time to really get, you know, really immaculate. Well, it actually didn't take that long to get immaculate control, but it took it's a lifelong journey of learning how your body responds to insulin across mm -hmm. all these contexts of life. Um, and so when I got my PhD, you know, I was in, you know, I was working under Dominic Gigasino with, you know, the likes of Angela Puff and, and others who were just, you know, amazingly wonderful people, brilliant individuals. It was a complete, it was an unbelievably amazing environment. Like those people are incredible. People will never, quite realize how amazing those people are. I was lucky enough to be there every day and be friends with all of them, kind of very close friends with all of them um, to this day. 
and um, lifelong friends, uh, actually. And, you know, uh, one day I was like two and a half, two years into my PhD. And one day uh, Angela comes back from a conference. She's like, hey, you know, I was just at this conference uh, talking about some of the work we do on uh, ketogenic diets and exogenous ketones and cancer. And there was this other talk on type 1 diabetes. Um, you know, I know you do this for yourself uh, all the time, but did you, you know, this there apparently is a group. Um, and I was like, I've never heard of that. And I'm quite honest with you. I've never known a single type one diabetic who's ever done this. Um, and then all of a sudden she's like, well, let me introduce you to this person I met. Uh, and so I got introduced and I joined the group and immediately I was like, holy, holy crap. I would use a different term, but we'll be PC here. I was like, wow. Like there are kids like five, six, seven years old hitting glycemic control. I've never had, you know, I've been doing this for like, you know, at that point it was 10 years in and I was looking at these other folks and I'm like, how the hell are these other you know, little kids getting this type of control? Like, and everyone was following this strategy. And so I, you know, what is the strategy? And there's hundreds of people, hundreds and hundreds of people doing this approach. I'm like, you know, like, I thought it was all by myself. I thought no one knew about this. So team, not to leave you hanging, but we'll bring you part two of that conversation next week with Andrew. And uh, as I said, pop those links in the show notes for you. Now, until then, you can catch me on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Bulletin, over on Facebook at Mickey Bulletin Nutrition, or on my website, MickeyBulletin.com, where you can sign up to my weekly emails. And in addition to that, you can also book a one-on-one -on -one consultation or sign up to one of my subscription meal plans where you get a 28-day meal plan, be it on real food nutrition or an eight-week fat loss plan for men and women. And that also includes access to me 24-7 to help you individualize your approach and optimize your nutrition-related goals. Awesome team. Alrighty, have a fab week. And until then, hit subscribe if you don't already on the podcast platform of your choice and tell your mates. I'm really enjoying bringing these, what I think are important conversations to your ears and I hope that you do too and that you're able to share them. Until next week guys, see you later.